Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, what perfect timing. I have Michael Murphy. Uh, he is the founder of the Right to Rise PAC, a conservative PAC that raised $100 million for Jeb Bush and, and conservative causes. He has been the campaign manager for people uh, as diverse as uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, governor of uh, California, Mitt Romney, governor of Massachusetts, and presidential uh, campaign candidate Jeb Bush, who ran for uh, the nomination of the Republican Party uh, in 2016 and and did not make it. The timing of this is perfect. Uh, he is not only a conservative and a very successful uh, political campaign uh, consultant and advisor, but he is a person who has been watching uh, elections for a long time. Uh, full disclosure, he is a member of the Never Trump group who think that um, Donald Trump is not the ideal candidate to be president of the United States. I found this whole conversation to be uh, quite fascinating uh, for two reasons. First, we booked it six months ago having no idea um, what would happen in the campaign because I thought we were booking Michael Murphy the technology newsletter writer. And I thought this was going to be a, a opportunity to geek out about all things uh, technology, software, telecommunication, etc. Instead, we got lucky and we got the guy who is really an extremely influential person uh, in the Republican Party. Uh, so that's number one. And number two, at the time we booked this, we had no idea who the nominee was going to be. We had no idea... Um, about anything that was taking place on the political side. Uh, it, it's a pleasure to speak with somebody who is incredibly skilled about political communication, about the way elections run, about the way successful campaigns do certain things or don't do certain things. Uh, all told, the timing of this could not be better. Uh, this will broadcast before the first debate. Uh, uh, the first presidential debate. And um, it was really absolutely fascinating conversation about the state of politics uh, in modern America. So with no further ado, here is my conversation with campaign consultant Michael Murphy. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Mike Murphy. He is a Republican political consultant. He advised Florida Governor Jeb Bush in the current election. He previously has advised such luminaries as Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney, uh, U.S. Senator John McCain, California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. John McCain privately called him 
Mephistopheles, so that should give you some sense of his ability to foretell the political future. He is a commentator on NBC's Meet the Press and the Today Show, used to write a column for Time magazine, and served as a fellow at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government Institute of Politics. And is I, I think I could fit safely say you're you're pretty much recognized as one of the GOP's most successful consultants and innovators. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I own that until we lost the Retro-Rise <laughs> Super PAC for Jeb. Now now I'm going to be retired, uh, uh, formerly one of the great consultants. But I had about 29 winning statewide races, and that got me pretty established. Mike Murphy, welcome to Bloomberg. So let, let's jump right into sure. your background, because I find it absolutely fascinating. You're not even at a college, you and you decide, hey, I could, at age 20, launch my own political consulting company. How, how did that well, happen? Well, luckily, it's an unregulated business. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was going to Georgetown. I was in the Foreign Service School. I'd grown up in Detroit, and I thought, wow, am I going to wind up in the auto industry, which was kind of appealing, but I was really interested in international relations and politics, so Georgetown was the place to be. I was involved in the College Republicans. I was all about politics, and I got this internship at the old NICPAC the National Conservative Political Action Committee, mm -hmm. which had invented the independent expenditure where a third group could run ads. And so one day they fired the ad agency and they said, anybody here know anything about advertising? And I had been like a, you know, around a radio station a little bit in like high school. So I, of course, said, me, I'm an expert. And one thing led to another. And they said, because it was low production budget stuff, all right, kid, make an ad. And I didn't know what to do. So I called up this ace producer who it turned out later had made one ad in his career named Alex Castellanos. Mm -hmm. And out of that came Murphy and Castellanos. Uh, we started making ads for these you know, horrible low budget campaigns because nobody else would hire us, but some pack work. And we got lucky on a thing or two. And so I took a leave of absence my senior year. I gave up being yelled at in Russian every morning by <laughs> Colonel Pirogov, the defector who was trying to teach us Department of Defense Russian, you know, which way to the tractor factory. Would you like some nylons for a picture of that factory? And uh, kind of ran away to join the circus of campaign consulting. So what was the lucky ad that, that was the big launch? Which was the first one that... You you said, hey, we, we got something here. Well, we we had a we did some kind of fun stuff for these independent expenditure campaigns mm -hmm. in the early '80s. But then it was the '86 campaign when Alex and I really officially you know got together. We were working for this uh, senator Steve Sims out in Idaho that everybody thought was going to lose. This is a by election between between presidential elections. R right, right, an off election, but still they had the Senate races in '86. Was a tough year for the Republicans. We we're these young guys, and Sims won. And some congressional races people thought would lose, we did pretty well in. In 86 and 88, that put us on the map. And Alex and I went off, and we had a great run. We did a bunch of stuff. And then in the mid-90s, we had probably the only amicable split up of a political consulting partnership. We're still very close. He went off to do a lot. You see him on CNN. He's mm -hmm. a big-time Republican consultant. And I had a good run, particularly with governors, blue state governors. I worked for John Engler in my home state of Michigan, mm -hmm. three-term win there. I worked for Terry Branstad in Iowa about his 40th term. We got a reelection there. The Jeb Bush race in 98, I did those statewide. Christine Todd Whitman in Jersey. I just you know, had a great run of I'm picking up states. a theme here. These are all pretty moderate GOP governors. Is that a coincidence or? Well, I people keep calling me a squish, which is the Republican word for moderate, but I'm a pretty right-wing guy. I, hell, I work for Ali North. I mean, I had plenty of... Alex came out of the Helms machine down in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. 
But I believe in the kind of conservatism that can win a swing state, which is something that's kind of been lost in our party now. So I, um, I consider myself pretty conservative, but I'm, I'm not a, what we like to call a paleocon. I'm a not paleo-con. a Buchanan Republican. No, no. Huh, I'm a- that, that, that's really interesting. So let's talk a little bit about your pack, Right to Rise. Mm-hmm. This was looked at as a juggernaut, a huge money-making machine. Who is the typical Right to Rise donor? Describe them. I don't mean, I'm not looking for a list of names. Sure. But what what sort of person is this? Give us some demographics. Well, the way it kind of works in the system now is you have a campaign for president, but you're limited under law Mm -hmm. to take a limited amount of money only from people, not from business entities. So you can take your $2,700 or whatever from an individual. All the campaigns, therefore, at least most of them, would create a super PAC which can raise essentially unlimited money. Mm-hmm. So often your donors who might give you the what we call the maxed out federal check to your campaign, which is relatively small, would also give to the super PAC. So we, we were very successful. And the one campaign we won, and really Jeb won, was the donor campaign, where you travel around the country, meet people, right. and convince them to back you, not somebody else. I mean, the people who gave to us, many of them also met with Governor Walker when he was in the race, with Senator Rubio, with Senator Cruz. You know, they were, it was a competition, and, and Jeb had the most compelling vision. So the typical person, uh, some were longtime party fundraisers who might write us a check for $100,000. We had, you know, a lot of those or $50,000. You had a few of the real kind of super donors of the party who could write, I think our largest donor was over $2 million. Uh, Mike Fernandez, a healthcare executive down in Florida. That's a big check. Yeah, it's a big check. These are successful people. Sometimes it's private family-owned businesses. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes they're, they're folks who just have always had an interest in politics and some were new. And they, they were people generally who knew the governor, many from when Jeb was governor of Florida, where he was very successful, or liked his vision that we weren't going to run a grievance campaign about who we're mad at. Mm-hmm. And we were going to run a campaign in the primary that we knew would be rocky, but we'd do it in a way where we thought we could win a general election. The primary voters wanted something else, so now we've got a candidate who is very strong in the primary, but is in real trouble, I believe, in the general election. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Michael Murphy. He is the founder of uh, Right to Rise. Is that right? I the think my, my title, and you know, we folded the pack down. We returned about 18% of the money. Mm-hmm. Or excuse me, about 12.5% of the money. That's a good return, 18%. No, no, oh, no. Okay. We, we returned our capital. But let's put it this way. Nobody else has ever returned a dime in right. politics, and we gave back millions of dollars. And what was your title with the uh, Bush CEO. campaign? Uh, I was and, CEO and the Bush- of the Right to Rise PAC, which has uh-huh. now been wound down except as a legal entity because we get all the FBC audits after the Gosh, election. Gosh, you have to keep that around. And then in the Bush campaign, what was your title? Uh, well, I was Jeb's uh, kind of senior strategist when he was running for governor. I, I, under the law, when in the presidential, when you're doing the super PAC, you cannot legally talk to the campaign or it's the candidate. It's one or the other. You can't yeah, do Yeah, you have to Oh, pick. that's really interesting. So so let's talk a little bit about this, the primary season, which was really kind of wacky. So really, it kicked off for me summer 2015 with the Fox News hosted GOP um, debate. And it was shocking. They came right at at Trump right out of the gate. In hindsight, it looks like that that approach backfired quite a bit. 
Well, Trump had a constituency that was willing to put up with a lot of heresy from Trump. In other uh -huh. words, he could do things that were considered impolite or rude or offensive, like attacking John McCain. Most people thought under the typical Shocking. political rules, and I did too, that that would hurt him. It didn't among the third of the vote that really liked him. The mm -hmm. other two-thirds, not so sure. Even today, Trump by no means has all the Republicans lined up. But in a multi-way you know, campaign with 15, 16 candidates, if you can hold on to a third to 40%, that's a ticket to the end. That, he, that's, that's huge. What happened. And yeah. everybody doubted him far, far, far into the the process. And in my mind's eye, when he went on Jimmy Fallon and did that mirror bit when the two of them are, mm -hmm. you know, it's Fallon pretend. And he was, so I know of him as a New Yorker, uh, full disclosure, I think he's an amusing guy, but not presidential timber. But at that moment, I turned to my wife and said, this guy can win. This guy can win the the primary. It was just... And every, at the time, I don't think a lot of people really felt no, that what, way. No, what most people thought, and I think the people running just about all the campaigns, is that Trump would be an interesting sideshow, but he'd fizzle out because there was another candidate who would get what we call the grievance vote, which was very large this year. Uh -huh. Blow it all up, hate everything, mad, who, who's the enemy? And that was Cruz. So most of us thought the real threat to the nomination, who we were very worried about winning, was Ted Cruz. But Trump managed to kind of outmuscle Cruz with that big persona. Trump was also with the Hollywood people, and that business would call a pre-aware title, which is when you're making a movie now, you go spend $400 million, and the marketing department comes up to you and says, well, we could make you know Flowers of Ralph and spend $400 million explaining what the movie's about, or we make Iron Man 11. <laughs> and you don't have to have the same Pretty marketing lift with Iron Man 11. That's why they're making movies called Battleship or you know these known titles. One title, you know exactly what it is. Yeah, and Trump was a known title. Now, even if all he was doing was teaching Gary Busey how to work a snow cone machine, he was on primetime TV every all week forever right. in a set, which, by the way, is now the location of the campaign headquarters set. Uh -huh. It's all this new kind of politics where pop cultures crossed over. But that created the identity where he was this super business guy on television, can do fire him, that persona. He was ratings. It is the news business. So mm -hmm. he got more attention than anybody. And that grievance formula which Jeb Bush would never go to do because, one, that's not, not, not who he is. It's right. not who he is, not what he believes in. And Jeb knew that Trump's going to lose the general election. You know, the worst thing you want is to have a primary, which is a drunken bender, where <laughs> you wake up the next morning, you've blown a presidential election, and that's what I believe we've done. So the parallels between 2012 and 2016 are, are, are similar. Nobody really gave Trump a shot in 2012. He went not all the not, – not that very deep into the process – Got a lot of brand recognition, capitalized it, and, and by some analyses, uh, the bulk of his fortune came about post-2012. Uh, people will argue about that. But what made this primary so different? And, and to, be, to be blunt, I thought the 2012 run of folks, other than Mitt Romney, was far crazier than this run of folks. I mean, you had... Just that was a, not me, but other people have called it a clown car. And it was apparent, at least to some observers, that Mitt Romney was going to come out of that ahead. We didn't quite have the same dynamic happen this time. No, by the traditional yardstick of folks who'd done stuff, we had a very heavy field. We had some big governors. Twenty this this this, this primary. Yeah, this time. As opposed to twenty twelve. Yeah, last time we I think Romney's a very serious guy. I, yes, mean, I worked absolutely. for him. I did his governor's race. But there were also some sideshow acts running. This time, 
It was the, the candidates weren't as crazy, but the voters decided in the Republican primary to be crazier. And you can see it on the Democratic side, too, with Bernie. There is such a populist revolt yes. going on in the country. The middle class hasn't gotten a raise in real wages in a long, long time. Right. And people have been mad at the political system now for a decade. They're fed up. They want to blow the whole thing up. I, I did Schwarzenegger's campaign for governor of California. And I remember Sacramento in that race for governor when the voters of a Democratic state reached in and yanked out the guy they just elected and threw him out the window in a recall election was the same kind of anger. The difference is Arnold took the job really seriously. He got the best policy people he could, starting with Warren Buffett, to work on a big plan for what to do when he was governor. That's not Trump. He's pure seat of the pants. But the anger is the same. People look at, at Arnold as if he's just a big, dumb actor, but he's not. He's a smart guy. He's a savvy businessman. He owns a ton of real estate. I'm not surprised that he did exactly what you said in in California. Yeah, he's shrewd. He's a planner. Arnold's always thinking about what's around the corner. A few steps ahead. Now, it's not a surprise that in 2012, in the midst of the financial crisis, um, the public didn't have much of an appetite for a private equity guy. Right. But what do we think about in 2016... You have a career politician on one hand, then you have kind of a renegade on the other. Which way is the public going to break? Well, the force that pushes Trump forward is what we political types call the wrong track, which is two-thirds or more of the people think the country's off on the wrong track. That means the election is going to be about new change, blow up the system. Right. And that is the win that Trump can harness. Hillary is stuck being politics for 40 years. She's a pre-aware title, too. Everybody knows who Hillary Clinton has. They have for decades. But she represents, oh, my God, the old politics. Now, the countervailing force, though, one is Trump's weaknesses. Trump's got a lot of Trump-driven problems. He ran a campaign designed to offend swing voters that he needs to win the general election. It's like he was built in a lab to lose the election. Bad strategy. The other problem Trump has is demography. The election scale in the general election, those 129 million people, is increasingly a much more democratic group than it used to be. Mm-hmm. 30% of the voters will be minority voters, black, Latino, Asian, or mixed race. Among that group, Trump right now is losing by essentially infinity. <laughs> so he's written off almost 30% of the vote, The 80% of which will probably go to Hillary, maybe more. So let me ask you this, yeah. this so question on that problem. exact topic. So- if you had to come up with a percentage, let we start with the Electoral College map and we look at everybody who went out and voted for Romney, what percentage of Mitt Romney voters are just going to say, I'm not going to pull the lever for Hillary, but I can't go vote for this guy? What percentage of I think 20, 2012 Romney voters stay at home? Well, I don't know about stay at home because there are other places they can go. We got the Libertarians. They 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 vote, but they don't vote in the presidential. They vote down ballot, right. big Senate races or House. But let me put it this way. I think Trump will lose at least 10% of the people who pulled the lever for Romney. And that's that's something like 50 million, 50-something well, million? Well, that, that uh, yeah, of, uh, it's a couple million people, put it that way. Less that, than what Romney's 57 yeah, or 58, But he may bring was. in some people Romney didn't have, too. You know, uh-huh. So there, there are two numbers there. But fundamentally, if you look at this polling, and there's constantly panic about polling, mm-hmm. because the media business has to cover for eyeballs every day of the election like it's the Hindenburg explosion. Sure. No matter what happens, it's the biggest thing in the world. We only hear <clears throat> about that one outlier poll, not the oh, other yeah. 99 each day. The sirens go off because they need the daily heat. That's where the clicks and eyeballs come from. So they're in business too. 
So, but if you look at the last 30 days of the polling, give or take a day, mm -hmm. and you average it all together, which realclearpolitics.com will do, the Trump number has basically been 41, 41, 41, 41, 41, 41, 41, 42, 41, 41, 42, 42, 41, 43, 43, 43, 42, 43 times five. He's been stuck down there because uh -huh. he's in this demographic cul-de-sac where he's not getting what he ought to have college-educated white people, which Republicans normally win. Romney won him by 14 points. Right. Trump's the up Democrat by three, has four. not. The Democrat in a presidential election has not won white college-educated males in I don't know how many decades. Right. And so he's in trouble there, particularly if white college-educated women who really are the most powerful swing vote. Mm -hmm. He's doing great with blue-collar uh, white guys. He's An doing increasingly okay small with, pool. Right. A shrinking pool. And he's getting murdered by the 30% that's minority. So Trump is stuck in this low 40s cul-de-sac of demography. The reason the race looks close is when the media only covers horse race, 42-42. Right. Well, 42-42 is the voters saying... We hate both these guys right. because a bag of cement can get 40 with a D on it and a bag of cement with an R on it will get 39. So the question is the difference between Hillary's 42 and 49 right. or Trump's 42 and 49 or 50. Who are those people? Well, they look a lot more like Democrat lean voters than Republican. Mm -hmm. So the real action of this race has been Hillary going from the high 40s and, oh, she's way ahead to Hillary doing something stupid or having a bad week Pneumonia, the campaign. whatever. Yeah, when they when they keep it a state secret. Pneumonia right. is suddenly the new nuclear code. You can't tell anybody <laughs> for seven hours after you face plant into the Scooby-Doo right. van there on television for <laughs> right. the whole country. It's insane. <laughs> but they get in trouble, and the, the polls are basically a noise meter of what was on cable TV four That's days exactly ago. That's exactly so true. And so they tick down. So there's kind of a VIX of polling going on, and it's mostly Hillary moving around. Trump's creeped up from 41 to 43. But he's running out of voters. Right. And give him time. He'll find a way to. to he'll he'll get offend him again. Like, he, he, again, today in the news cycle, he's out, you know, attacking more people and. and the Bertha thing. I yeah, can't believe yeah, that. He, I thought that was behind us. I'm astonished that came up again. He's, I think, working on something today where he's going to try to get out of it. But, you know, he, he gets out of it, then he gets back in it. So right. he can't help himself. Yeah. The question is can Hillary fix herself just to get to her generic number? Right, and that's enough for her to win. She would win because the generic number for them is bigger than ours now. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is GOP campaign strategist extraordinaire Michael Murphy. He has advised pretty much everyone on the GOP side, from Jeb Bush to the governor Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, to Mitt Romney to— uh, um, McCain, you were uh, big with McCain in 2000. I, I did the 2000 campaign. I didn't do 2008. And for Mitt, I did the governor's race. People always hear my bio and say, so you're the idiot who lost. No, no, no. I did the Straight Talk Express, which did lose. But boy, do we have fun. Let, let me ask and you a question Mitt about that. So, yeah. so I'm an odd political duck growing up in New York. Jacob Javits, Republican, socially progressive, fiscally conservative. I loved the 2000 John McCain, wholly unimpressed with George W. Bush. Here's a guy telling the truth, the straight shooter. He was, and then in 08, that guy disappeared. What what happened there? Well, I think he was the same guy, but he made the tough decision that everybody in politics eventually has to make because it's a tough bracket. And it is, boy, 
I'd actually like to win the election so I can do some of this good stuff I believe in because he's the same guy. And now I've got to be the standard bearer of the party. Last time I got to run against the party and we had fun, met girls, drove around the country in a bus. <laughs> it was fantastic. And we almost stole the election. You know, we had it. We were halfway out of the bank and there were just a few too many cops. <laughs> the second time we tried the robbery, maybe we actually try to get out with the cash. And so when John ran the second time, he ran a little bit more of a traditional Republican campaign. And guess what? He won the nomination. But it was not enough to win a general election. And I think one thing that hurt him a bit in the general was he'd lost a little of that appeal he had to cross over voters. That sure. was so much a part of what we did in 2000. He, he lost that. The, the financial crisis teed him up. That was really – there was the let's uh, suspend our campaign and rethink this. Yeah. And at that that was the point where it's pretty much he And he was up against history of Barack Obama. Yeah. And the fact is the media loved McCain. I used to joke the media was our base. Uh-huh. But what the media <laughs> really wants is a Republican martyr. Boy, he gave it to him, and then they beheaded him. So who's the Democrat we're going to be for? My personal thesis is the Iraq war was going bad. The financial crisis was a disaster. As long as as the Democrats put somebody up who could form coherent sentences, uh, it it was their race to lose. That was a really uphill battle for Republicans. And the Obama phenomena, I'll never forget. You know, I'm still close to McCain. He's a great American, one of the most impressive people I ever met. And I went and visited him. You like, it's okay that he was captured? You were right with that? Yeah, I'm, and I know I know a lot of details. I met some of the guys who were in the Hanoi Hilton with them. Or I'm as McCain sure they horrifying. I stayed in a hotel once where they don't leave a mint on the pillow. Well, <laughs> Donald Trump, you know, I mean, it, the, the deferments, a lot could go on for hours. Uh, it, it, Trump just disgusts me in so, the So let me McCain. ask you, let me take off my independent hat and put on a Democrat hat for a second. Hey, how much of this is just karma coming back from the swift boat uh, debacle? Is this, can you really complain about that? And I remember McCain defending Kerry, to his credit, was not a fan of the swift boat stuff. But well, the party apparatus that approved the swift boat, is it a surprise that it devolved into this? Well, I don't know. I'm never a big believer in pulling the sweater thread of one right. campaign thing because then I got to go back to LBJ using an H bomb to terrify the country about sure. Barry Goldwater. So I, I do think the political culture has gotten coarser, but Trump is an outlier. Trump is breaking rules of basic civility, let alone the truth. He is right. the fact check meters in the in the press have exploded. He broke the machine. I mean, how it's do you fact check a person who? Tells everything no they truth. say yeah, is, yeah. Is, and, is an outlier. And everything's a pivot. He's a Republican one day, he's a conservative, then he's a liberal. Because I mean, he doesn't I, believe in anything. Like I, any good con man, he's just trying to get the room. Uh, are you suggesting that he's a grifter? Is that is that what I'm hearing from I, you, I Mike think, Murphy? I can't say he's a grifter, but I think he has griftish tendencies. Griftish tendencies. All right, we'll see if that, that makes it into the campaign. So let's talk a little bit about the Jeb campaign. How surprising... I mean, it looked like this was Battle of the Dynasties. It was going to be Hillary versus Jeb. How much of this was just the forces you talked about earlier that was the anti-incumbent? And how much of this was he just was rusty and off his game? Well, the voters are always more important than the campaigns because they decide what they want and they go find it. And often what they find takes a while. So they Mm -hmm. go land on somebody. And then, of course, everybody's shocked and amazed at what happened. But it was clear it was going to be a grievance primary. And one of the great secrets of the Jeb political operation is we were bluffing a little bit. In terms of what? We knew how hard the Republican primary would be for a a positive candidate like Jeb. Yeah, but you don't run a campaign saying, hey, guess what? We think it's really going to be uphill. 
you run a campaign saying we've raised the most money, we have the most qualified guy. We're inevitable. Be for what's going to happen. We were trying to muscle Rubio out, Kasich, others. That was the strategy because you don't lead with your weaknesses. But internally, I'll never forget, I had dinner with Jeb and Sally Bradshaw, who's Jeb's other longtime political person, a dear friend of mine, and his son. And I, I won't go into a private conversation, but we all did the odds of winning. Mm-hmm. Early on, when we were thinking about this, and the guy who had the lowest number at the table, and none of us were over 50%, Jeb. was Jeb. Uh-huh. And we said, well, then, I have an idea. Why don't we order another round of drinks and not run for president? And Jeb said, if I don't do it, if I don't try to run the kind of modern conservatism that can win the general election, get power to change the country with our policies to lift everybody up, that's why we call it Right to Rise, who will? I know it's a long shot, but who will fight the good fight? We're going to get Cruz otherwise. Or, you know, we'll get another grievance candidate. Trump wasn't around at that so point. So no one really was thinking, oh, Trump is the guy that's going to Not at that. Trump everybody. wasn't on the radar then. We were much more worried about – we were worried about the, the kind of forces in the party that picked Trump in the end, but we thought they'd grab on the Cruz. And we'd run a grievance campaign, the Republican Party, and we'd blow the general election. We'd hand the White House to Hillary Clinton, who's eminently beatable. Uh-huh. And we'd set the party way back at a time when we needed the opposite and the country needed our ideas, at least our Bush conservative ideas, which is about fixing a lot of things that don't work in the country with free markets and other things we believe in. So we always knew it was more of a crazy long shot than anybody thought, but we could never say that publicly because it would undermine our attempt to muscle our way through. Now, that said, Jeb, if he were here, would be the first to say I was rusty out of the box. He was. I was not in perfect candidate shape, not at all. But, I mean, people say, well, would you have done anything different? I can say, I can think of a hundred things we would have done different and we would have lost differently. You know, it's weird. I'm in a business where you live by winning and losing, and I've been spoiled. I've won a ton of campaigns over right. the years. Had some losses like everybody. You learn a lot in your losses. You actually learn more than you do in the uh, win. The same is true in the world of investing. You, yeah. and you, you, you walk into a casino, you win. Hey, you're a genius. But when right, you walk right. out, you lose. It requires a very different bit of self-reflection. But I can tell you, the, the Jeb folks, even though we had the resources, thank God for that. Jeb worked very hard. The finance people did. We had a great team, many of them here in New York. So we had the dollars to make our case, but they were not buying what we were selling. So weirdly enough, even though we all hate losing, believe me, it's not pathologically, we sleep pretty well because there's nothing Jeb Bush did in that campaign we have to apologize He for. ran an honorable campaign. He bowed out at the appropriate moment. He yeah. didn't overstay. Uh, there's not a lot of things you can really... Yeah, we weren't other talking than- about Mexican rapists. We weren't <laughs> lying to people. Trump's tried to steal our immigration plan on days when he's for immigration reform, which is right. about one out of three. Um, you know, so fought our corner, fought it hard, worked like dogs, Jeb in particular, and guess what? We lost. Life will go on, but if... As I think the numbers are going to show that Hillary Clinton will be sworn in as the next president, you know, am I going to be saying I told you so a little? Damn right. (laughs) So let me ask you three questions about Jeb that really stood out. The first was very surprised that he was seemingly unprepared for a question about his brother's administration, the Iraq war. That that kind of surprised me that that wasn't off the tip of his um, head, top of his head, tip of his fingers. Did did you? I know you weren't working directly with the campaign. Well, I was around then. That was before I went to the super PAC. That was a situation where we all knew from minute one 
what the answer the press wanted to hear to say he's quote answered it right you know because the press judges, and what's the right answer oh it was the worst thing ever and you know oh, it was we horrible. made a mistake we should a terrible in mistake, terrible and... mistake the problem is like a lot of governors jeb had written a lot of letters made a lot of phone call to people who had their loved ones killed in action right fighting for our country and he wasn't in a big hurry to say yeah it didn't mean anything and so he again what would make him a great president, but did not always make him the perfect machine tool candidate, uh -huh. was he pushed back for a few days that he didn't want to like run to bury the sacrifice of people right. by trying to separate that from just the policy mistakes that were made. And he did say policy mistakes were made, but he didn't leap to it with glee the way the media narrative would like. So what does that mean? It means you get scored as bumbling idiot for four days by the right. process press. The same people who are hyperventilating today about polling data as Trump becomes the president of September 18th, you know? <laughs> so again, I, I draw analogies to the business world. This is a lot like value investing. And the daily panic, the daily herd is something you have to resist strategically, but it rules the press. So it's completely. a voting machine short-term and a weighing machine long-term. Long yeah, and if you yeah. can figure out the net asset value of an electorate, you're gonna do well. So second question related to the, the, the Jeb primary, Donald Trump comes out and uh, Jeb says, well, you know, my brother kept the country safe. And then Donald Trump comes out with what is not just a Democratic talking point, but a far left talking point. September 11th happened on your brother's watch. You, your brother didn't keep the, the, the country safe. I'm in New York and 3,000 people died. That's unheard of yeah, oh. amongst Republicans. And what was the reaction to that? Well, in the room where it happened, he was roundly booed. Trump was. You know, he was During clobbered the in the debate. Yeah, yeah. And we, you know, contributions surged, all the normal stuff. Really? But, again, Trump Trump was the creature at the beginning of about 25% of the primary electorate. Uh -huh. And then it grew to the mid-30s. And they were ready. I mean, we tested all this stuff. We'd do polls and focus groups of Trump voters. And they were locked in. They were like, no matter what he said. I don't care. I mean, a GOP candidate has never yeah. said anything like that. Yeah, but he was not. And this was the big surprise to those of us because the last thousand times you've done a campaign, the ideological primary voters vote ideology. Right. And you know, Trump could be wearing a Karl Marx suit, and the twenty-five to thirty percent that he really had, they wouldn't go anywhere. They're like, look, he's my guy. He gets the issue, and then you'd feel the race in the room. They would not quite say it, but the right. little thing was, he knows what the problem is, if you know what I mean. Wink, uh, wink, whistle, wink, whistle. Wink, wink. So I don't care what you fancy pants college jerks say about him with your, your whatever he said in 1989. He's my guy. Screw you. And, you know, maybe some of you guys will get thrown in the camps. I mean, it oh. was rough. <laughs> there are some rough voters out there in Trump world. Now, well, I he think, came out and said, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue, and my people are still going to yeah. support me. That that's you're saying that's true. That, and that was the core of the core. I want to be fair to most Trump voters here. I, I don't I blame the con man, not the marks. I think okay. there are a lot of people who are for Trump. The vast majority love the country and really think he is a way to change it for the better. But back in those primary days at the beginning, there were some rough elements in that world. And they were ready to take almost any rhetoric from Trump. And some of them really love the roughest rhetoric about the Mexican rapist coming in and all that. That was That's part why of his that equation. resonated. Yeah. 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 So the last Trump related question with Jeb, um he has a aside from the fact that he's a talented television presence and personality, he has a way of crazy Bernie, crooked Hillary, little little Marco, lion Ted, and he came at Jeb with low energy. Right. Uh, what was the reaction to that? Because 
Jeb stands up there, and you're not supposed to be doing a dance at the podium. You're supposed to be articulating intelligent policy positions. Right. Well, it was a code word. You know, I was screaming at the TV. I couldn't talk to the campaign, but how about needy Donald? Right. You know, because um, there's no needier person Narcissist in American, Donald, American right. political life. The low energy Jeb, one, people who know Jeb all went nuts because he's- He's not, he's not a low energy it, guy. If Trump was on Jeb's schedule for two days during the primary, Trump would be in the hospital. Right. Um, the but it, he's the healthiest presidential candidate ever. That's yeah, what we're and, told. And he's the Energizer Bunny. He used to it, the twenty five year old staff couldn't keep up with him the workload when he was governor. But it wasn't about low energy. That was a code word for smarty pants talking with the big words. When I'm uh -huh. going to tell you what's really going on, Mexican rapists are coming over the border. Uh -huh. Well, Jeb's talking about well, it's an act of love. Frankly, when they come into the country to try to get their families a life as an American, Jeb would Jeb was civil and polite, and that was a code for low energy with with. Spanish members of his family. Yes, of yes. course he's going to push back. Yeah, on that. so that that was that was Trump's code for other. Jeb uses big words, and you know he's not he doesn't have my grievance anger, and so it it really meant polite and thoughtful, which was frankly not what forty some percent of the primary wanted this year. I joke it was like selling opera records at a tractor pull. They just weren't buying it. <laughs> and it's too bad because if Jeb were a nominee right now, or I'll say in fairness, Kasich, we'd be up three or four in Hillary on our way to win the election and probably get the Senate reelected. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Michael Murphy. He is a Republican political consultant, most recently known for the Right to Rise Super PAC. He has advised... Jeb Bush, Mitt Romney, Arnold Schwarzenegger, John McCain, and now runs a fabulous podcast called Radio Free GOP. Radio Free GOP. You can find that on iTunes and, and pretty Stitcher, much everywhere all else. the usual places. Yep. So, so let's jump right in to the um, to the general election. Uh, what what does the Trump campaign mean for future elections? And non-politicians. Well, we have, it's interesting because we have this crossover now, pop culture, into politics. We had a little bit with Arnold back in 2003 sure. in California, but this is a whole new level. I'm terrified a Kardashian right now is looking at a map of New Hampshire. But didn't we, ha we've had Sonny Bono, we've had There's been athletes, some, yeah. we've had the guy from George the Love Murphy Boat. way back when, the right. actor, Ronald Reagan was an actor originally. So, oh, of course, that's the ultimate pop crossover, yeah, right? Exactly. I actually did the campaign in the primary against Fred Grandy, who was the mm -hmm. guy from the Love Boat. He ran for governor. And I'll never forget poor Fred. We ran a radio campaign when we found out he'd been a liberal Democrat in Hollywood. Fred Grandy, he may be a better actor than we think. <laughs> so the actor thing actually became an issue in that primary where we were able to beat him with Governor Branstead. But he was a pretty distinguished Republican congressman for a long time. I do think we're going to see more crossover, and there will be kind of Trump imitators. But it's hard to imitate Trump. One, he is so pre-aware and so uh -huh. famous. And two, his blustering style, which both helps him by attracting attention and hurts him by offending voters he desperately needs to win a general election, uh, is a hard thing to replicate. But so, he's put his claw print on this, no doubt about it, and it will be felt in the future. So you've worked with uh, with the media and through the media. What is the media circus of a presidential campaign like? What what does the average listener at home not know about this this mayhem? 
um, that it's a big mob that watches itself. So there's a huge herd mentality, mm-hmm. and it's running against a clock of now, now, now. Because what digital media has changed is the old days where you had the deadline at night and then the paper, and now the news cycle is instantaneous. Twitter, you know, the various social media platforms, it never ends. So they mm-hmm. they are like a herd of buffalo running, looking one foot ahead. This just watching each other thundering toward anything. The, the old joke I used to tell, which is kind of unfair to my friends in the media, is they're kind of like the Jurassic Park dinosaur. They're you know, 40 feet tall, five foot teeth, and a brain about the size of a grapefruit. And when they see movement, they want to go sniff it and eat it. Mm-hmm. So when something happens in the campaign, they see as movement, you know, this herd of Jurassic Park dinosaurs, they thunder over and probably destroy whatever it is with investigation. So... Whatever the movement of the day is, be it the candidate falling in an orchestra pit or Trump creates some phony trip to Mexico, uh, they they thunder and cover the hell out of it because every day has to be a big day to to go. Now, to give them some credit, there are stronger, more important themes and analysis that does happen that kind of floats above. But I would say they've been a bit flummoxed by Trump because the old media weapon of the raised eyebrow. That's really not quite true, sir. That used to send most people in public life to like, well, I, 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 you know, and back off. Trump's oblivious to it. He just doubles down on whatever misstatement he just made up. And they haven't quite found a way to push back because the rule book is they can't say, that's a bald-faced lie, you con man. Have you You noticed- They're trained not to do that. I've noticed that CNN, of all stations, is running on the crawl like a real-time fact check. No, what he said isn't true. That's unthinkable with any other candidate. Yeah, well, it's kind of like- it's the World Heavyweight Boxing Championship, and one of the boxers walks in with a chainsaw and starts slicing at the other guy, <laughs> and the refs are saying no, and he slices the ref, and the crowd's screaming, the, uh, it and the thing wrestling. doesn't stop. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, but wait a minute, you've just broken the rules of there are no rules, and then the ratings go through the roof, and maybe there are no rules. So let me flip the question on you. Um, uh, what does the media get right? What sort of coverage have you seen? That you've said to yourself, hey, this is really insightful. They do two things really well. One, even though it is an insane herd, and a lot of the analysis I see on television drives me crazy because right. they're so ill-informed nonsense. And, and, and silly. They cover it round the clock, wall to wall. So if you want to know what kind of tie Donald Trump is wearing today and the words he said, just clip on table TV, cable TV or the internet. So it's you're there. And mm-hmm. they use the technology and the resources they have to put you in the campaign. You can actually cover the campaign now without traveling, really, even as a journalist, because it is so accessible electronically. So you have an unfiltered view of the whole thing that you've got to sort out. The problem is there's a lot of bad, dumb analysis. But we get a level of kind of transparency into what happened that day that is unheard of 15 years ago in politics, who, even 10. Who Who is doing the sort of deep dive research that then impresses you. What have, what have you yeah. seen that stood I would say out? that's the second thing. There are some people who are old pros who are writing smart political coverage with context to what's really going on, not the daily trivia chase. I would say in the print side, Jonathan Martin at the New York Times does mm-hmm. a great job. There are others there, Maggie Haberman, a bunch of their they, – they do – it's a left-wing newspaper, but the news folks covering – the analysis side of the campaign, I think there's some strong people there. The Post, there's a great beat reporter who covers- The charity issue. 
Yeah, yeah, uh, right. I don't remember his name. He's called like 400. Yeah, Fahrenheid, I believe. I'm uh, mispronouncing what, it. How, how brilliant is this? This guy yeah. has called like 30 charities a day. Have you received any money from yeah, Donald Trump? The post He's found it. one $5,000 donation out of... They've it's done amazing. A, a great job on that. Bob Costa is a good shoe leather campaign gossip. Who's fighting who in the elevator? What's really going on? He's one of the few guys, deep sources in the inside in the, baseball, the banana republic of the Trump campaign. Right. There's no campaign. It's a banana republic, and a lot of the things they say about what's happening are not that true. And he's well sourced there. I think Dan Balls has always been the thoughtful, big picture slowdown. I've seen a lot of elections, and he's where he's at the post. Mm -hmm. Ron Brownstein uh, at the National Journal is probably the best guy in demography which is always the motor of what's really going on. Sure. If you want to kind of read the balance sheet of the candidates with the reality of who really they're probably going to have in the end, if you know, to use the investing analogy, Brownstein is very good at that. And, you know, there are others. I mean, I'm, I'm being What about unfair. the new media like um, Politico, Vox, BuzzFeed, uh, Vice, any of that stuff uh, yeah, stand Glenn out? Yeah, Glenn Thrush at the Politico, I think, breaks some stuff. I'm generally not a political fan because they're in the often in the trivia and gossip business. Uh -huh. uh, they're kind of the Hollywood reporter, the old Hollywood reporter of politics. Uh, and so they, they'd really like to know who's fighting over the cafeteria menu in the campaign, and they're, they're quick to blast stuff out that's weekly sourced some, sometimes. So let, Sometimes let's, they get it right, so I, I don't want to be too unfair to them. So let's talk about the about the campaign uh, nitty gritty because you just you just dropped something I want to follow up on that there isn't a whole lot of campaign there. I keep reading that Hillary has this massive machinery and they have fifty offices in each of these of the fifty states and the get out the vote and all that sort of stuff. They run like a finely tuned machine. And he seems to be spending money in Virginia, which doesn't make a whole yeah. lot of sense to me. By all the conventional rules of this, Hillary has the big, complicated campaign of the massive staff doing all the traditional things. She's like the dog food company with the best satellite-aimed trucks, jingles, you know, sung by Lassie. She's got everything. The only problem is you crack open the dog food, the dogs sniff it, and they whine and run the other direction. Right. So, But she has all the machinery and distribution, and that is worth something. Trump has no campaign. He has a couple of yes men who circle him uh -huh. and yes women, but it's all Trump. And the mechanics of the campaign are an advance operation because what Trump really wants is somewhere to land the plane, somewhere to have a hall full of an adoring throng to cheer, uh -huh. and he'll do his routine. He kind of does this like stand-up Don Rickles meets whatever he is, um, Juan Perón. And, and you know, that's the whole Trump campaign. So when Trump has a big idea like, hey, I'm going to go to an African-American church and take on Hillary – Great media chum. You know, oh boy, cat bites dog, Republican and African-American community. Let's, they're covered the hell out of it. But you need a real campaign operation to go find an African-American church where a pastor is willing to let you do a political speech, which, by the way, actually happens all the time in churches. But not you, supposed to, you but need it a does. depth of field to, to figure that out. With Trump, the advanced guys come in and say, all right, this will be his hold room. Here's the special meatloaf. Here's the coffee. Here's the signs. And they find out they pick a pastor who shut him down because the thing was not, they couldn't execute it well. Right. And so at any question of execution, be it policy, be it a digital campaign that means anything for, you know, the mobile devices that are increasingly the front window on so much in communication, including campaigns, all that stuff, they got nothing. They, they've, they're doing a few polls. They got people trying to talk him in being the same. They got like one and a half speech writers who can put him on a prompter that he'll ignore half the time. Right. But it's like a bad congressional campaign level of, of technical <laughs> competence. How important is – so he has this huge Twitter following, and I right. will admit his tweets are amusing. 
Sometimes they're. Um, I want to little... figure out who writes them. Well, you could tell there was. It was BuzzFeed said when it's uh, at the bottom of each tweet, you could see was this tweeted on an iPhone or an Android device. It turns out that when it's on the Android device, it's his staff, and when it's on the iPhone, him. And you could see one one is very clearly angrier and and a little yeah. more bullying, and the other one is a little more circumspect and a little more. Uh, I think he just correctly down spelled. the hallway, probably to Hope Hicks, who's kind of his press valet. Uh-huh. Uh And send out a Twitter, you know, and he barks out something, and maybe she tries to clean it up a little. So, but how significant is Twitter to the national campaign? Is this something that? Uh, the inside baseball people like and are really impressed, but the public doesn't care about? Well, or is Twitter affecting the election? Twitter is a very fast electronic bulletin board that all the reporters use to kind of watch stuff. I'm at Murphy Mike, and I do it all the time. I've got over 50,000 followers, and I've never said my Twitter handle on television. It's kind of weird. It just organically grows. Sure. But you also get a lot of people who are just, they think they're digital warriors, and so they're barking at other people. And there's that's a lot what, of kind of graffiti on Twitter. That's what the mute button is for. Right. No, exactly. My favorite thing on the Twitter feed. Um, I love throwing people off the island. I figure <laughs> they don't pay to follow me. I get to fire them whenever hey, I want. Hey, uh, people who are annoying get muted. People yeah. who are intellectually dishonest, I block and, and leave it at that. I kill people who do. I don't kill. I block or mute them when they do bad puns. I'm oh, so really? tired of stupid, unfunny puns. That's a real Bush League move. You know, it's like, really? Done. See ya. Yeah, yeah that, you know, work <laughs> a little harder on the jokes. So Twitter is a good way to get an, a message out quickly. But in the mass voter world, the other social media is much more powerful. Facebook. Facebook and increasingly Snapchat and some of the uh-huh. other, even Pinterest. Because what Facebook does, and the, all the social media does, is they take credible information and they move it sideways. In other words, we have a thing now called the virtual precinct. In the old days, you have a precinct captain going door to door, and you'd know the guy two doors over. Oh, yeah, he's a veterinarian. and come over. Look, I know your wife's big into animals. You this candidate. Now the virtual precinct is your best friend from college who's the teacher in Columbus, Ohio, is everybody as much in contact with you as your friend two blocks over. Mm-hmm. So the precinct on social media, those swing voters in Columbus may not be getting their information from the Columbus regular Republican or Democratic organization, but from their friend from high school who actually lives in Riverside, California, who may take an article that really persuaded her that Hillary is bad, click a share, and then the person in Columbus will read and trust their friend who sent them the clip, and that mm-hmm. information will go sideways and have a huge impact in a precinct 2,000 miles away from the person they have the social connection with. And it's really changed political organization. So that raises an interesting question. In the 08 election, it was clear that the Obama campaign had a much more technologically sophisticated approach than either Hillary did um, or, or, or McCain did. He He seemed to really have that core group of Google geeks that he brought along and, and became his secret weapon. And what I've been hearing, uh, and especially in the postmortem after 2012, was that, hey, the GOP really has to capture catch up to the Democrats on this. Um, and it doesn't seem to have happened this cycle. How important is technology relative to what it used to be? And is this lag uh, between the Democrats and the GOP as sizable as it was? And when does the gap close? It is sizable, and it is a huge problem. But one caveat, we always obsess on the gadgets. 
you know, in the campaign. Oh, the new mind reading polling device or this or that. I, I ran a guy, a long shot guy for president in 1995. We announced the campaign on CompuServe. We hold the right. record for presidential campaign launched on the web. But you can overdo the technology. The truth is in 90, excuse me, in 2008, when Obama had much better analytics and digital than the McCain campaign, which was Stone Age, you know, just mm -hmm. it was the Keystone Cops. The Obama campaign would have won without the Internet because the big narrative storytelling of the campaign and the demography, the most powerful forces, were all lined up with Obama. What about 2012? Is the same true? I think the same. Let's put it this way. It is a huge campaigns are amplifiers and all media be it radio paid television direct mail telephone calls and of course everything digital particularly mobile devices which are eating everything mm -hmm. is an, is a powerful amplifier and the analytics you can get by knowing what people are interested in helps you learn so much more about the voters and be so much better at even doing the television it's all true and the democrats are way ahead but some of that is not by choice it is driven by the audience the Republican primary, our core tribe, uh -huh. is old. So guess what the dominant media is? AM radio. Oh, really? Which, with all due respect to Bloomberg Radio, you know, I know you. We're on have, AM. You, you know, ten <laughs> years from now, you'll probably be streaming. We're not sure AM radio will be carrying. This is streaming already, right? So, exactly. so not only is this. So here's the technology. And just the to Dems, give it context. It, it's uh, definitely the internet because they're younger. So, so this broadcast, this will go out on radio. It'll be streamed on right. Bloomberg.com. It'll be rebroadcast on Sirius XM. It'll show up on iTunes. It'll show up on SoundCloud. Right. It'll be in a dozen places. But you're saying the core GOP voter is a little older. They're watching Fox News. They're listening to AM radio. They're probably right. reading a physical paper, not, right. not something online. How, so those demographics, how big of an issue is that? It's a and huge when does issue that change? because our center of gravity, our audiences, our core audience mm -hmm. that picks our nominee, they tend to gravitate toward yesterday's media because of age. Sure. So we're really good at AM radio, which is probably the least important thing to be really good at if you plan the next 10 years of American politics. It's been, listen, Rush Limbaugh and there's a right. whole crow. People, they've been really, really effective. Right. And they're on the web too. I mean, they, they're branching out. But my point is, is kind of an illustrative joke. Our activists gravitate to AM radio. Their, activate, their activists gravitate to the internet. Mm -hmm. So guess what? They're much better at the internet sure. organically. But we, we look, we, our problem is not technology. After that report came out, which I agreed with, I would have loved to have been a big iron salesman selling computers to the RNC because everybody wants to buy the gadget. Uh -huh. Our problems are more fundamental than the gadget. Our problems are modernizing conservatism to appeal to the demography of the modern America so we can actually win a presidential election. We have lost, you know, we're the market party. We believe the market's smart. We've lost the voter market in five of the last six presidential elections. That's 20 years of our product being rejected by the consumers of a presidential election. The only group I know with a longer than 20-year losing streak like that, this is true, is the Washington Generals who were paid to lose to the Harlem <laughs> Globetrotters. Their losing streak is 24 years long, so when Trump blows it, we can turn pro. We'll be able to join the uh, Washington Generals. So we've been speaking to Michael Murphy of the Right to Rise PAC and political consultant to... Jeb Bush, John McCain, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and other, and host of Radio Free GOP, which you can find at iTunes and Stitcher, everywhere else YouTube, you're fine. You name it. Yeah. Podcasts uh, have been have been found. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for our podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue uh, chatting all things political. 
You can read my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Mike Murphy, thank you so much for doing this. I have to share a hilarious story with you about how this interview came about. So I have a booker, Taylor. She does a fabulous job. Um, and we're always, you know, there's always three dozen people in the process of either them reaching out to us or us reaching out to them. I'm not going to be in New York until November, whatever it is. And it's a process. Your namesake, Michael Murphy, was on Bloomberg TV the same day you were on uh, either um, by all due respect or one of the shows. Huh. So I send an email to Taylor saying, oh, uh, Mike Murphy was really good. You sh we should get him on. She goes, okay, not a problem. He's back in New York in September. Fantastic. So, so I go about my day and I don't think about it. We prep for these about a week in advance. I start doing research and I ask somebody, I don't know if it was you or, or the, the, the press person, hey, send me your bio, we'll, we'll start our research. And back comes Mike Murphy, right to rise, et cetera, et cetera. But you thought it was the Silicon Valley guy, right? Four months ago, <laughs> I thought it was the tech guy. So I tell Taylor this, and she goes, what do you want to do? I go, this is fantastic. The election's a month and a half away. I have a million questions for Mike Murphy. Oh, that's funny. Yes, by all means. So this was a fortuitous- Right now, the tech guy's on Meet the Press. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. I wonder how often that happens. So thank you so much for doing this. I'm, I'm happy very to be excited. Here. Um and most I, of my work is working for business, by the way. Oh, really? You know, yeah. My, I, I don't really do campaigns anymore. I do corporate problem solving and public. So is it crisis like uh, consulting S some, or specific some marketing? Some crisis and also, you know, messaging. Politics teaches you how to uh -huh. punch a message through. And, and on a product or a on a specific? Both services. I do work for HP Enterprise. Uh -huh. I've done work in the past with Facebook and, you know, a whole bunch of so HP. companies. So um, HP. So uh, Carly Fiorina, what, what was that about? Well, and she's, you know, great presentation, ambitious, and she's now looking at running for chair of the Republican National Committee. Really? Yeah. You think I she think has if, a shot? I think she'll lose if Ryan's previous runs for re-election. He's got a pretty good grip on it, but maybe. Yeah, she's got a lot of fans in the party. What What happened to her campaign? Well, I think she never really had the base to run for president. It's hard to run for president when your be a last story first. is you, you got clobbered and, you know, immediately right. a very hard state to win. Right. She ran courageously in California like Meg Whitman did. And not a – so Meg Whitman has a great reputation from, from eBay and uh, – uh, I forgot the products company she was at before. Was it Colgate Palmolive or something like I that? I think she was at PG and PG. That's right, Procter and Gamble. Yeah, PG. But so she's got uh, Meg Whitman has a wonderful corporate yeah. resume. The Compaq HP merger, people aren't as excited about, and I think Carly has less of a uh, of the business uh, cred than the Meg Whitman. The California did. business community did not really fall behind Carly the way they did behind Meg. Right when they both ran. But I give them both credit for running in an incredibly hard state to win as a Republican. Sure. And now- If you're Carly not Arnold Schwarzenegger. Doubled down. Yeah, but Arnold was like a hybrid. He could, you know, he had that big identity, so he can kind of bring everybody together. And it was a recall election, no Republican primary. So unlike both- Oh, that's right. I Meg in particular, Meg had an anti-immigration guy running in the primary, which really hurt her in the general election. That's, a, that's an issue in California, much more so than New yeah. York. I'm surprised homelessness isn't as big an issue in California. As a New Yorker, right. going to California, you go to L.A., San Francisco, or straight up the coast, Portland, Seattle, 
as a New Yorker, I'm shocked at the amount of homelessness. Yeah. San Diego, it's shocking. It's, it's an issue that comes up on polling, but California politicians don't talk about it. Why is that? Well, I think we're a one-party state, and nobody wants to kind of get into the identity politics arguments with the interest groups that say more money to the homeless versus kind of the groups that are more of a, a tough love approach. Uh-huh. And so they don't see a political win in jumping in the middle of that. Utah did an analysis, and they said, we could take these people, put them in public housing so they get their meds, so they— Well, it's interesting. I was in Utah two days ago, and a couple of mayors straightened me out about that because I asked them about it. So and th- tell, their, their in, thing enlighten is, me. The media got it wrong. We did a thing for veterans. We could take care ah. of the veterans that way, but the whole community now— Homeless are coming to Utah from around the country. Get out of here. Believing that there's a part. Yeah. I, I had so this a, was for homeless vets, not for the general That was the initiative. Population. And I had the- And it's the been very successful. The city councilman from Salt Lake kind of explained it to me. He said, my theory is we're, we have a growing homeless problem because we became famous as the place where come to you. There's an apartment for you. And that's not quite accurate. Well, sure. The homeless get online. They read this on the internet. How, are people really traveling across country to go to Utah for I, free? I, I'm not the fact checker on it, but I had a credible- <laughs> Utah's municipal official tell me he thought that that story had attracted more homeless. To, but but to the fact that it was homeless vets that that's what the that actual... was the program. Yeah, okay. he thought that was a distinction that should be made. That makes a lot of sense. So so let let's talk a little bit about about the general election and, and things people don't understand. If if you were to share with the public, here's something you probably don't understand about the entire campaign process. What would that be? I would say, one, it is a human endeavor. So all the eccentricities and wonderful things that make humans unpredictable are part of the campaign. It's less Mm -hmm. of a machine than people think. And eccentrics have a, a role in it. Second, people way overestimate the importance of daily polling data. I often joke that if I woke up one day and they said, hey, welcome to China. You have a new job. You're head of the Chinese spy agency. I would say, okay, I guess I got to do this. Give me the budget. And I'd immediately take about $20 million and I would start buying off pollsters in the U.S. Because 90% of the pundits you see on television, the experts, quote unquote, who if you notice have to be an expert about everything. So often they're an expert about nothing. Right. They look at the average of all the polls every morning and then they engineer opinions to fit that. And so we're in this kind of silly feedback loop. The truth is it's a lot more like value investing. You want to identify the balance sheet of each campaign, the real assets that are there, get through the accounting blur, and not worry about the daily vicissitudes of polling, which have a lot to do with what was on the news two days ago, and see who's getting what assets from the electorate. Who's doing well with women and women are going to like and land with? Who are college-educated versus high school-educated men going for? Where are minorities going? And then you can pretty well know the reversion to mean that'll happen on election day. That's so funny you say that. Literally my column that that September 16th is about we overemphasize the most recent data and ignore the long-term trends. These right. daily things are so noisy. They're so subject to revision. You you were mentioning 41-43, 41-43. You could have 100 polls at 41 but the one poll that comes out and says 46, right. and when it's against the, the overwhelming weight of the evidence, the assumption is, hey, that's the poll that has something wrong with it. Right. That's the one everybody runs with. It's the one that makes the news. I have a friend who's an old retired journalist who says, if a Martian landed and watched only television, 
they would think that gerbils can water ski because the only time you've seen a gerbil on TV, it's on water ski. So therefore, gerbils must be the outlier gets the attention. Yes, and that and that yeah. creates a the very much. Now, um, I'll defend a little bit. They are right when they overreact to these polls that the race has tightened a little bit, but they assume that it's kind of like the psychology of the stock market. People assume the current direction will always continue. Right, it'll keep going up or it'll keep going down. So. Trees don't grow to the sky. You can't, right, you can't right. extrapolate that it, it, way. Exactly. And so when I look at the election, I've seen the new Zonker poll. Here's everything I know. Polls are hard to take right. because people don't answer their phone anymore. Right, for so sure. The, the methodology is harder, which means to do it right is more expensive and takes more time in the field. The average media publisher doesn't always say when I'm buying a poll, can I get the most expensive, really good one that takes a week to do? <laughs> They're like, I need an instant poll tomorrow to have candy, have something to talk about on the morning news flash. Right. So- you know, the pressure to provide cheap, junky polling to consume, to feed the trivial discussion every day with the sirens going off. We have a new action poll. And now it's a closer horse race because you were using mediocre polls. Well, not always mediocre. I don't want to have too broad of a brush, but let me put it this way. The election is more complicated than daily polls. Mm -hmm. And the big trends that you want to figure out don't always reveal themselves in the poll. And finally, Everybody covers the horse race of the two numbers. One guy's at 45, one's at 44. It's a one-point race. I'm saying, well, who's not yet at 49, and what does the next five points look like to get there? Because the people who are undecided are not going to leave the planet. Almost all of them will vote if the poll is correctly done of registered voters, and they're going to land on somebody. So even though it might be a two-point race now at 42, 44, there's another you know, easy 10% of the vote that's going to show up and be for somebody. And that's a much better understanding those voters and where they're going to land or likely to land tells you a lot more than 44, 43. Are there really undecided voters at this point in this sure. election? So uh, let, let me push back on this. This show, and it has been a reality show, this has been going on for well over a year. Yeah. The Brits have an election. It's six weeks and they're done. And I think the Canadians are 30 days. This is a year of this. Is there anyone out there who really doesn't have a firm opinion on, I like Hillary, I don't like Hillary, I like Donald Trump, I don't like Donald Trump? I mean, at this point, yeah. what is the big reveal that's going to affect well, them? Or are they just being a little coy? They're being a little coy. Um, because we in the old days, you know, like the Gallup poll uh -huh. or Harris – when the polling phone call came, you'd stand up. It was like the president calling. It's, you know, oh, Dr. It's Mr. Gallup. Gallup. Yeah, yeah, it's a big deal. Oh. Now we have a poll every two seconds. Right. So there's some political science thinking that says people use polls to kind of slap the system around a little bit uh -huh. because everybody knows they get to change their mind. So when if you were to like the electorate, people who say they're for Hillary might for a week say, oh, I'm thinking about Trump. Nah, I'm back to Hillary. Uh-huh. It's kind of like when you ask somebody what kind of car they're going to buy. Well, I'm thinking this is the year for the Mercedes, you know, if you ask them six months before their lease is up. And they're going to float around a couple of car brands. Right. Half of them will stay, like base voters. They're not going anywhere. I'm a Chevy guy, always been a Chevy. But others will float based on what they're seeing out there. Mm -hmm. But if you pull the same people three days before they buy the car, they've, they're down to a price offer. Right. And the Mercedes is now off the list because they found out that, oh, it's going to be $300 more a month than I thought. And they're heading for that Ford Fusion or whatever. So, <laughs> you know, just because they say it on September 17th doesn't mean it's what's going to happen in the election. It tells you what would happen if the election were held yesterday. That's so, what polls do. So we've seen polls in the past that um, uh, famously Carter was ahead, what was it, nine months, eight months before the mm -hmm. election? 
And uh, going into the primaries early on, it looked like Obama had no chance in, in 2008. When do the polls really begin to firm up? It's mid-September. We have, what, seven weeks left? I don't know any serious practitioner, which means people who spent 20 or 30 years running races, living in crap hotels and campaign headquarters for senators, governors, congressmen, and occasionally presidents, who pays too much attention to the horse race ballot mm-hmm. until after the first debate. And that means Which is October. the end of this month. Yeah, so early October. Mm-hmm. And until then, it's like me handing you an apple, some sugar and some butter, some flour, and say, what do you think of my apple pie? You know, <laughs> Not you get, ready yet. It, yeah, you have to cook the thing. And so do we follow polling now? Of course we do, but you don't really look at the horse race. You look at the internal numbers. What do they think of Trump? What do they think of Hillary? What do they not know about Trump or Hillary that you know as a consultant is true? Because the main thing we do in a campaign is introduce new information, and that is a powerful thing. So that that's a really interesting set of questions, and let, let's unpack that a little bit. First, in a stage with 12 people, Trump was a tremendous debate presence that worked out really well right. pre-aware title and remember the electorate in Republican primary is only maybe 29 million people uh-huh. which is 100 million fewer than the general election electorate so one of the the things that's happening now is people are saying well nobody thought trump could win the primary and he won the primary so wet streets cause rain which means trump can win the general <laughs> they're two totally different electorates you know it's um, so heading it, into the general debates for the general election right um what what's your read on how he's going to behave and how he's going to do in a one-on-one debate versus what he did in the in the 12 person debate you know it is impossible to predict trump it's just mm-hmm. it, 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 you know the only thing i'll say is you know trump will be trump right which means he'll careen around he'll vamp everything He'll, one minute he'll try to be thoughtful and quiet. The next minute he'll be talking about Vince Foster. What the mix is of that, you don't know. I mean, the joke I tell about Trump is the Trump advisors are kind of like Charlie Manson's Foxtrot instructors. Charlie, today's Foxtrot lesson. Great. Ta- step, step, tap, step. Steps. He does it. And then he does it. You're thinking, wow, he's making real progress. Then he stabs you in the eye with a pencil. <laughs> so you can't predict Trump other than he will be unpredictable. That's the right. prediction. And we will see versions of what we've seen before because people don't change. So right. w- whether it's a mix of the more subdued Trump they occasionally get because they've got the Thorazine out or whatever they do, or it's Trump totally unhinged, or both during a debate when when kind of crazy Trump breaks out of the Thorazine Trump after 30 minutes when, you know, you can't put another pill in. Who knows? Now, Hillary, we do know because her personality is so transparent. She'll try to win the spelling bee. Call on me. Call on me. Right. I wrote a paper on that. She's a policy wonk and, and yeah. she'll be wonky in the debates. So the real question will be when Trump kind of tries to bully and muscle in on her, how she handles that without doing a bad Trump imitation, which would not help her. Right. But she can't be too passive either. So it's a tougher debate for her because she's, she's got to thread that needle. She's got to navigate the crazy while still showing strength because he she's is got to be strong and likable and yeah. experienced. And I don't love her, but I could live with her. That is that what right. she's going for? Uh, I would say from her point of view, I would be thinking about how do I move the needle on the number one, the kind of thorn in the voter's toe about me, Hillary, which is nobody trusts me because they think I'm an ultimate political calculating machine. So how can I break through all the political crack and get people to think I'm a real person, 
I have stuff I believe in, which is why I'm in this. And here's what I'll do for you. How does she get that connection done? And how does she appear strong enough that Trump setting his hair on fire, you know, six feet away, um, does not affect her in a way where people say, you know what, she's just not strong enough. Right. Uh, Trump, meanwhile, if he's smart, has to know to win the election, he's got to take one of two groups and dramatically change what they think about him, which is the hardest thing to do in politics, get people to totally change what they think. He's already got to get minority voters to change what they think, or he's got to get college-educated white women to go from not liking him to loving him. And does he That's have a big challenge. It is a lift I've never seen anybody else do. And Trump is not the kind of guy who does disciplined lifts. He just shows up and he still thinks it's the Republican primary. And so I think he'll do his act and he'll hurt her a little. And because I don't know how good she'll be. I'm very worried she'll be overprepared and all that from, a, again, very worried. I'm not voting for her. I'm not right. a Hillary Clinton fan, but I can't but aren't vote for you Trump. kind of in the never Trump campaign? I, am, I never vote for Trump. If it came down to just my vote, I would probably jump in the lake, but I'd leave with my suicide note a absentee ballot for Hillary Clinton because if I had to pick, her mediocrity is so much better than Trump's venality. I mean, within the range of acceptable politicians, she may not be your cup of tea, but you know that she's a serious candidate. She won't try to get out of NATO. She'll actually be right. 10 or 20% better than Obama on foreign policy and national you think? security. Really? And that's my guess. Those are the issues and on the I economy, the what's your view of her on the economy? Uh, oh, How far has Bernie dragged her to the left? Dangerously far. The, 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 the hijack team of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are a threat, and they're a tragic one because the policies they're pushing her into, and she has plenty of her own bad instincts here, are going to hurt the people they want to help the most. It's going to be murder on the working poor because what's going to happen? Growth's going to drop, and with that, there will be no upward pressure on wages, and the people who are barely getting by right now are going to get a worse deal. Now, we've had, let me push back on you a little bit, the most recent data on wages came out. It was the, the best numbers we've seen in a while. We're still below the 1999 highs, but the gains over the past 12 months have fallen mostly to the middle class and the poor. That's very different than the past 10, 20 years. Some of it is the reduction in poverty. Some of it is um, the lowered number of people with without health care uh, or health care insurance. Uh, and some of it is just, hey, we're, the cycle has now gone far enough that McDonald's, when McDonald's and Walmart have to raise their bottom wages to attract employees, hey, we're pretty close to full employment at this point. So the pushback is this is working and we want to continue letting it to work. So go with me, Hillary, uh, who will continue these policies as opposed to Donald, who's going to do who knows what. How, how do you respond to something like well, that? Well, we are starting to see some wage growth. And we're, we're, you know, the economy is showing some strength. I agree with that. But her plan appears to be more redistribution, mm -hmm. you know, because she doesn't want to face the hard question the next president has to face, which is we can't afford, we can't afford the entitlement state we have. Mm -hmm. So her plan is, well, uh, we're going to make the rich pay more of their fair share so I can have my cake and eat it too. I don't have to touch entitlements, which are a ticking fiscal time bomb. I can tax more money, which will have a chilling effect on the economy. And I'll keep having growth that way. I think the only real kind of Keynesian growth plan she's got that's different than Obama, she's talking about infrastructure spending. 
I'm actually for infrastructure spending because I don't hate the idea of borrowing money from the Chinese at, you know, zero, zero, right. maybe negative interest rate. We really skunk them and <laughs> build things that enhance American productivity. But if we don't give handle, me a for instance on infrastructure, where would you spend? I totally yeah. agree with you, but preach to the choir. Where should we be spending more money on infrastructure? Um, there are two baskets. One is the basket of stuff we have to do. Uh, but haven't been. The water supply system terrible. is terrible. Vulnerable, and, and, insecure, yeah. and falling apart. And if we, we don't we, start- we have water mains throughout the country yeah. that are literally 150 years old and have never- Built for 50 years, yeah. never been replaced. And unless we don't like the idea of drinking fresh water, there's massive things to be done there. Mm-hmm. On the- the other safety one is bridges. The Civil Engineer Society thinks one out of four D- American minus. bridges yeah. are unsafe. Bridges and tunnels, terrible. Right, in the totally. States. And then on the productivity increasing sign, our ports. Um, on the West Coast where I'm from. Man, our, are you preaching to the right guy. Our, our ports are going to be under real competitive attack from Chinese finance, Mexican ports, tied into the high-speed rail system in Texas. Right. And it is incredibly hard to get a can from the port of Los Angeles into the intermodal system now because we haven't really invested any money. The other thing we have to do, I, I'm a right-wing nut, but I also know the facts, and I live in Los Angeles. We lead the country in childhood asthma in, in the bowl around L.A., uh-huh. and the heavy sulfur we burn in the port is a big sure. problem there. So my left-wing Bernie friends would say shut down the port. I would say give free electric hookups you know, so they can turn off the heavy diesel there and switch to natural gas shuttle trucks. But that's dollars. Right. But all in all, the healthcare offset cost of having kids with asthma, and not the humanitarian side is even more persuasive. I would love to see a port revamp, and we could really use a natural gas terminal on the West Coast. Let me, I'd also let like me to add, see more American-made nuclear power plants. Let me let me add that uh, I want to see more exploration of the thorium um, plants, which is supposed to be uh, the newer technology, much much cleaner. But let me give two little caveats to what you said. You know, we really haven't shored up our plants, our our ports as much from a security standpoint. Sure. I mean, we inspect with Geiger counters and other um, uh, checks for nuclear devices. Something like one in 20 uh, is one thing. And then the other thing is, you didn't mention, our electrical grid is yeah. is very much antiquated. It's a patchwork. It's, it's vulnerable. That's something else that from both a infrastructure uh, perspective – and from um, a security perspective, we're, we're not doing it. Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. The problem is, though, we need Davis Bacon reform because right now to build public works is about a billion dollars a foot. Right. And uh, that's how we rebuilt California. Governor Pete Wilson, after the earthquake, had freeway overpasses that had fallen down. Right. And Oakland he got, and he got to suspend some Davis Bacon stuff. So everything. What is that? Is that a, it's uh, the labor rule? Okay. I, I had a mayor in a in a western state of a growing community tell me I can build a highway for half of what the feds will spend because of the, some of the labor rules they have. So huh. we meet it halfway. I think the Republican votes for infrastructure. And we're at a time now of low interest rates. I'm for borrowing money to make our physical plant the best. 50-year bond at, at 3%. Yes. You could you could refinance a national debt make and money replace everything. Totally agree. The other thing, though, is if we don't get entitlement spending under control, the other half of the equation, it's going to eat the entire budget. So it's Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. Particularly Medicare, Medicaid. I know I only have you for a few more minutes. Let me jump to some of my favorite questions I ask everybody, um, and I'll and I'll keep it really short because I know time's a wasting. First thing, favorite books. What what sort of books do you like? Uh, I read a lot of history. 
I'm kind of a history nerd. I read a lot of everything. I'm a bibliophile. Give me, but, give me a uh, few names. I like the Ernest May stuff. Um, Ernest May. Ernest May was a professor at Harvard, advisor to the Pentagon. Give me a name of one book. Well, Strange Victory, where he does all the war games of how the Germans beat the French when the French had the bigger army, and nobody thought, huh. even when they run it at West World Point, War I the French. World War II. World War II. The French uh-huh. win. Uh, he also wrote a great book, I don't remember the exact title, about how people argue with historical anecdotal evidence. Napoleon never attacked in June, that kind of stuff, right. and how it affected bad policymaking in Vietnam. Huh, that's you know, fascinating. How people misuse history and arguments. Ernest May, he passed away, but he was a giant in that field. So there's no such thing as a bad Ernest May book. Um, in in business strategy, I'm a, duck, a Drucker guy, Peter sure. Drucker. Search of Excellence. and Absolutely, just about anything he read. I'm a real fanatic, but uh-huh. Search of Excellence being tops. I'm a value investing nut. My two favorites, I think, would be, well, both the, the Graham stuff, and I, I like Munger's stuff, too. Sure. And Seth Clareman, who's a friend of mine. Oh, really? I actually have a copy, a margin of I safety. have a, a yeah. PDF of it, but I don't have the physical copy, it, it, which uh, now go for like $3,000 on eBay. Yeah, luckily, he was a friend, and I cornered him in his office, found the drawer, and he sent me one. So, oh, um, that's fantastic. But anyway, yeah, yeah. So I, I, uh, I like that. I... I'm a big student of Cold War history because that's you know originally what I studied. So yeah, a uh-huh. lot of a lot of historical stuff. And um, let me ask you my two favorite questions to wrap us up. So a millennial comes up to you, someone who just graduates college, and yeah. said, "Hey, I want to get into the political consulting game. What sort of advice do you give them?" I say, start out trying to run a campaign locally to learn politics. Don't go to D.C. Uh, it's not where you're going to learn anything other than build a network to get a job, but then right. you become a guy with a job and no knowledge, which is we have enough of. Uh, you can <laughs> get, there, Congress. get there later. When in doubt, you want to learn politics, go work in a state capitol. Oh, really? That's very interesting. And, work for and a our, state rep. Our last question, what is it that you know about politics and campaigning today that you wish you knew 30 years ago? Polling is overrated. Mm-hmm. Digital was not only going to become big, but it was going to eat everything, to quote Mark Andreessen. Um, And that despite the flashy technology, including digital, never forget its narrative storytelling. And when in doubt, trust that more than anything else. Mike, this has been- Beginning, middle, and end, a story. This has been really fascinating. The timing couldn't be better. If people want to find your your writings or your radio show, they go to... Sure. I got a couple of things. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at Murphy Mike. Radio Free GOP is my weekly podcast, which is a lot of fun. We're doing pretty well with it. And I've got a website that is needs to be updated a little, but I stuck all my commentary writing there. And what's the URL stuff. of that? It's called MikeMurphyCommentary.com. So for those of you who have enjoyed this conversation, you can look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes and see any of our other 109 or so uh, podcasts. I would be remiss if I did not thank uh, Michael Batnick, my head of research, Taylor Riggs, our booker, uh, Charlie Vollmer, our engineer. We love your feedback and comments. You can send us email at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. 
Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.